This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine. My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. Must have been around 10 o'clock. We got in. I remember walking down and leading the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there, and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. It was just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. And I, I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine Band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out, and half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking when, geez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down that concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and, and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us, you know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on. He had a starch khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and campaign ribbons on his chest. Shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were. We were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war. We needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know. And we get on the bus, the bus is packed. The bus is full of people. And we get on the bus and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, chest, chest to back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turned, gave us an about face. So now that we're all in this line in the aisle, facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat just tightly linked together and the bus was full and now the last plane had come in and we just we went we were going in my opinion we were going to Marine Corps Theater but I was more of a smart aleck that night that would quickly be taken care of the next night so we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night we pull up outside the receiving barracks. And outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front and it was black as night on the bus. I mean, you couldn't barely, you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes and his voice just came out and filled that bus. Now, when I tell you to, you will get off my bus and you will get on the yellow footprints. Do you understand? Yes, sir! They told us, you maggots got 20 seconds to get off of this bus 
and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds. And then he yelled, move. And boy, we just getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats and he's up there screaming and yelling and there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling and sure enough, when he got to 20 seconds, he just started kicking them in the butt and getting them off that bus. We scrambled outside. We got it under the yellow footprints. We stood there at attention. They were three guys and they were just, these DIs were just moving up and down each line of the rows. Looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp. And if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off. Anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform, underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing there, we got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And a DI tells us, you men, have, you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hallow property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower. You've got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off. Get dressed and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room. We jumped into the showers and the spray. And to help us along, because we had some people who not only were slow, they were, some of them really actually were very stupid, he decided to count down. So we're scrubbing and the steam are going. I hear this voice go, 48, 47, 46, move, 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 damn it, move. 45, 44, 43, I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36, and we busting our butts to get out of that shower. And we were half dry, half all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving. Out on that floor to get out there in the auditorium. And when we come back, more of this story. And what a storyteller, folks. And again, we just find ordinary Americans around the country. These aren't professional writers, screenwriters, script writers. They're you. They're me. They're the person next door. Bob McClellan, The McClellan Files, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off. Our uniform consisted of a one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt and that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top. And everything else was in the bucket. I got out there and lined up across the tables. I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball. I hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born. His pale skin indicated that all the blood in his body must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety, no doubt. His eyes were wide. You thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. He was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body, all of which the Marine Corps thoroughly intended to change. The DIs were walking up and down behind us, and now I I took things a little bit more seriously here now. I wasn't at the airport uh, shooting my mouth off. DIs told us to take everything that we brought with us, everything, and put it into the box. And into that box went all the pictures that I brought, pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything. My clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address at home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past. It contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago. But I knew now it didn't matter to anybody down here. None of that mattered. Not your past. You don't matter. All that matters is do what you're told. You're going to get a new life. The new life you're going to get down here is going to be one of purpose. And you're going to have a purpose and you're going to learn to do it well. And from that purpose, you'll develop your values and your self-respect. Down here, you'll learn to know who you are, where you are, and what you are here to do. But right now, that was a far, far distance from where I stood that moment at the table. All I wanted to do standing at that table was to get the box. I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room. Get on my clothes and get the hell out of there. I had three years of this ahead of me. D.I. told us to step back, went up and down the table, made sure everybody had done everything correctly, and then standing up in the front, he pointed to the single door at the end of the room, and he yelled, I'm going to give you maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints. Move! And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding, boom, 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 boom. 
uh, the stampeding going down those stairs. Yeah, men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. It wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in and they'd isolate a weak recruit and they'd pull him off to the side. And they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him. And they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of his, the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging and their jaws would be opening, gnawing. And just knew that if you just got anywhere and you're close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continue to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We look like blind men trying to flee a burning forest. Out the door onto the street, out on the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley-looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark, and the DI got up in front of us. And just to harass us, he'd come along, and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands tell you to pick it up off the deck and then he said because you people are so stupid you don't know left from right so what I'm going to do is I'm going to count really slow I want you to lock arms four abreast hold your gear and march when I tell you to ready forward march left right left started yelling at us because we weren't in unison left right and then out of nowhere God, people make me sick you're nothing but a bunch of cows you march like a bunch of cows get down on your cow faces get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push ups and dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground and tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could. So he started yelling, get up, get up, damn it, get on your feet, get back into formation, get your gear, lock your arms, ready, forward, march, left. I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. So we all started mooing and mooing and cadence. All that was missing was the cowbell. And so this cow, herd of cows, started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor. Left, moo, right, left, across the base. And anybody that saw us or anybody that heard us, they knew who we were. In the Marine Corps' eyes, we were the lowest form of life on earth. There's none lower. None lower than that. And we marched across the base to our Quonset huts. At 0400, they put us to bed. Told us to lie at attention in our bunks. Until Reveille. I remember lying there at attention. Listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence with Constantino wire on the top. 
the planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours, I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from Platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland. It'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. We think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men join the Marines. They, most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset, I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 0445 in the morning, a 50-gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my Quonset hut, announcing reveling. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk that morning had now arrived. Thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille. And Reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's, he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday because, folks, like so many memories in our lives, the big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan Files. This one was called The Blast Furnace. What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him with stories to tell. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. 
but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo Wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California. In a blind taste test, judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs, they would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. <laughs> it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergich was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gergich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, given what he used to do for a living. 
I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create anything that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or maloactic fermentation, a process Gergich helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formose says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacre Bleu! Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do 
by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding or credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because they kept locking the keys in them. One day I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. <laughs> I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. <laughs> Sold a number three for 28 bucks. <laughs> I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. I 
you can't have everything, where would you put it? <laughs> sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses. Are there any questions? <laughs> Feeling kind of hyper. <laughs> About four years ago, I was... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> I went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. So I had to buy them again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone when I came back. The entire area was gone. time the police stopped me for speeding and they said don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour I said yeah I know but I wasn't going to be out that long before we get back to this legendary comedy routine let's hear from Stephen about his writing style the audience doesn't care about style or anything they just care whether it's funny because I was you know, I had more normalish material. Eighty percent of it was like what I'm known now. But even within that, they would, if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it. It was the actual piece of material. And I just thought abstractly. That's just how I wrote. I didn't think a plan. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an e extra blank face because I was afraid. And I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience. And then that just like went together, kind of meshed, like just by accident. Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. I was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know, how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something. I wanted to that was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Pete LaSalle. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very... You know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ax murder you and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so, you know, that's still a highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. 
Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. It pleaded insanity. I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? Then I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said, no further questions. <laughs> I'm going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. It's kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> I don't think they did it. I know a few of them, and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in, and he said, If I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. So I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. <laughs> I had the photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, Here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. I have a telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. Who is it? Who's it gonna be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. I broke a mirror in my house, I'm supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. 
I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. <laughs> I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night. <laughs> And that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've all also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez regularly brings us great stories about freedom, one of our favorite subjects here on Our American Stories, and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. On May 4th, 2017, I went to St. Louis, Missouri to attend a competition. Slytherin versus Gryffindor. No, not that type of competition. A competition of high school students. The hell with it. That may sound kind of, well... Boring. But it wasn't. They were competing for real money. Money. Uh. For their real businesses. My name is Quincy Milosevic. I go to McCormick High School, and I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. My name is Nate Weenan, and my business is fudged up, and I saw a game at Price. My name is Dave Mamakini. It is my business partner. Ron Hayley. And we're here to introduce our business partner, the Double Backer Packer. The competition sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, Nifty, who brings entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to low-income communities reaching over 500,000 such students to date. These students create their very own business idea, write an entire business plan for it, and even get to pitch it. And pitch it to get to the national competition in New York City with its $25,000 grand prize, which the top two winners of today's competition, a regional competition, get to advance to. Two of the evening's competitors and its MC had something in common. And better yet, not just something, someone. The same teacher, the best teacher. Every year, Nifty honors the teacher of the year. And this year, 
Mr. Jake Lipinski from McClure North High School was honored as the Global Enterprising Educator of the Year. We'll talk with Mr. Lipinski later, but first, his stars on their big night. The rules are that each of our presenters has 8.5 minutes, eight and a half minutes to present their presentation. And then the judges will be given four minutes of discussion, question and answers. We will time that. And the first up of Mr. Lipinski's competitors was Quinton Milosevic, who's pitching his business Walk It Off, a supplement to the Fitbit exercise watches that count the number of steps you take. And Quinton started off by doing something masterful. He engages the folks in front of him. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, my name is Quinton Milosevic. Uh, I'm a junior. I go to McCormick North High School, and I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. So, by a show of hands, do any of the judges own a Fitbit smartwatch or account that does for fitness? Fantastic. Anyone in the audience? Awesome. So, uh, why do you have a Fitbit? To keep track of the calories I burn. Right. Uh, do you know what your app, uh, what your goal is to learn? Or how many steps you have to take? Ten thousand. Why? Because that's what everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> My point exactly. Now, because it's based off nothing, people aren't losing weight and they're stopping using Fitbit, and I have a solution. Walk it off. So the problem: forty-two point three million Americans own a Fitbit. However, one third of Fitbit users stop using Fitbit after six months. Why? Because people are trying to beat step goals not based off any facts. They just sound nice, you know, 10,000, you think that sounds good, not, no one's losing weight. It's my solution. My app tracks the calorie intake of the user and converts them into steps. So now, the steps you need to take are based off what you ate, not just a random number. It has meaning, especially when you go for that favorite food. Well, let's say you went to McDonald's for lunch, you got a Big Mac. Uh, you, you go onto the app, you launch it, type in Big Mac. Different options will come up, you press that one, and because there's nutritional information in the database in the app, it'll say 1,000 steps. I'd do 1,000 steps for a Big Mac. Good to know, good to know. And then came the judges sharing their wisdom about what might be good for Quentin to know. So Uber spends $20 to get every single user. You, I forget the number, but it was way too low. So how do you validate, how have you validated your marketing cost to get people to go to the app store, find your company, download it, and then pay 99 cents? Oh, what great feedback. Without getting the marketing right, even the best of products won't mean anything to anyone. And also how your marketing expense interacts with the corresponding revenue it brings in. A one-time download fee of 99 cents might not be enough to sustain the business long-term. Another judge actually recommended that he consider a reoccurring revenue model for this reason. You know, these are tough, yet good questions for Quinn to wrestle with, and it's much easier for him to dive into them at the start of his enterprise than later on. And he now has that opportunity thanks to the help of these judges. Next up, the second of Mr. Lipinski's competitors, Nate Whedon, in his gourmet fudge business, Fudged Up. And during his pitch, this high schooler did something interesting. He told them about his qualifications. Work experience, uh, I've had three jobs, and I've worked since I was 15. 
And so I've had experience. Uh, two of the businesses I work for were uh, local first generation startups, so I kind of got to see how they run a business. And I think that gives me a lot of experience in starting my own. In addition to that, I find my own lawn care service. So I work with customers to um, buy quality lawn care. If I were an investor, I would want to invest in a guy or gal with experience like that. But sadly, I'm not. Then Nate faced the judges. What is the shelf life? Okay, so um, it's organic, so it's refrigerated because there's no preservatives. Um, normally we eat it up, so we don't have to worry about that. But it's about like one, it's about two months maybe. About um, In order to sell in stores, I'm going to have to get that tested. Um, you take that to a lab and they test the bacteria growth, how long it takes. I researched that. Um, that's something I would invest in before I sell in stores. Nate was one confident cookie there, and it's because he clearly did his research. You could hear it and could be confident in what he was saying. The judges are going to go to a separate room to deliberate on their two, three, and a half, first, second, and third. And after the break, we'll hear from those judges, and you won't want to miss it. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our own Alex Cortez report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's regional pitch competition in St. Louis, Missouri. And when we left off, the competing high school students had pitched their businesses, and the judges went into a private room to pick the winners. It took the judges about 15 minutes to deliberate, and it probably felt longer for the competitors. So, judges, I think we're all interested in your impressions. Is there any feedback you'd like to give students before the results are announced? I would encourage you, gentlemen, uh, when you face those hurdles and those challenges, look at them as opportunities. You know, you're navigating, you're figuring out uh, the no that you're hearing, uh, potentially, is not right now. You're repositioning yourself to say, you know what, how do I rethink about my product? Now, what's another way for me to reposition this to be successful? But then when you hit that roadblock and you're like, maybe it's, it's okay to pivot. Um, so if you're going to have a, a shortcoming and if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail forward. Because uh, that's the only option. Don't, don't go back. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you've done tonight. I think it's one thing to have a great idea, but I think it's another to be able to articulate it as well as each of you did. And so thank you for the time you invested in the passion All right. We all did fantastic, but there has to be a winner. So I have the honor the judges have made the decisions. So in third place, with a winner of $500, is from Cornwall High School, Quentin Boloskovich. Next two finalists are both qualifying for the national competition in New York City. In the second place, receiving a reward of $1,000 from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney. And in first place, Nathaniel Whedon from Corinth High School. 
And after the awards ceremony, I caught up with Quentin Milosevic, who I briefly met before the competition, where he didn't tell me something significant that he mentioned in his pitch. Hey, how does $500 feel? Hey, this is good. Yeah. Nice, yeah. You did a good job presenting. I liked it. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah. wish you had to go to New York. That's all right. Oh, it's all right. I didn't know you were, uh, you were an Eagle Scout. You were humble in not bringing that up when I interviewed you. <laughs> I know that's one of the greatest uh, qualifications out there. Yeah, it's it was scouting has changed my life. That's uh, that's just all my friends I know are scouts, and uh, I met them, and the skills you learn are amazing. So yeah, yeah. What percentage of it, the Boy Scouts, are get Eagle again? Oh, like six percent. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I. Uh, it was awesome getting it, and uh, I try to help my troop get there. People in my troop get Eagle, too. So. You know the guy who was the youngest in Missouri State history to get it? Who? Sam Walton. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, learn something. Is that great? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks, Quentin. Yeah. And then I caught up with the first-place winner, Nate Whedon. Hey, how does it feel, winner? Uh, it's good. Yeah? I'm super excited. I was so impressed uh, you were able to answer the, the uh, shelf life question that well. Oh, yeah. That you had researched and prepared so well in advance. Yeah. Yeah? Did you try to think through every possible question um, that someone well, could ask you? A lot of the questions they had asked me were from the previous round, so I had known from that one. And I had been at, they had been asked that, so I thought like I need to think of a better answer for yeah. the next one. Excited for New York? Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, how about the money? How's it? How are you That's spend awesome. It? That's awesome. Uh, I'm probably gonna save it, and I'm gonna try to use it for my business. I'll probably spend a little bit, but I'm gonna use it for college and for um, this business. And he might get more money still in New York. I next bumped into the aforementioned MC of the night, Matthew Wilkie, who the prior year made it all the way to the national competition in New York, but came up short. And now he's on his way to college. What do you want to do after college? Oh, uh, I want to teach entrepreneurship. Why? Well, I've come to realize in this world that you can do anything. Right? And I feel like some, a lot of kids, especially in lower income areas, not as well-funded schools, need to learn that. I mean, Nifty was started on this, on the principle that there was a teacher in New York City. Okay? Yeah. He has an idea. He taught entrepreneurship. He told kids that you can, if you have an idea, you can make money. And I think entrepreneurship is a way to take poor and make rich. Right? And this is America, we're a capitalist society. I think that that's the way to do it. Through education, learning, and just putting your nose to the grind and doing something. Do you want to try to be an entrepreneur first and then go into the classroom? Of course I want to do. I, I want my, my goal in life is to own my own business yeah. and create. But I realize that, that there's always going to be education. I want to be certified for education just in case I have a fallback. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, that's everyone's dream, I feel like, but it's definitely mine. Just own your own business and be able to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. How much of this do you credit to your teacher, Jake Lopez? You know, I, I give a lot. Uh, I started, I had no, going to high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then he invited and said, hey, I was on the wrestling team with him, and he said, join DECA. Deck is another business camp. And I was like, it's all right. It's pretty cool. And then I took his entrepreneurship class, honestly, just because he taught it. I thought, okay, easy A. He's my coach. <laughs> I got this. But And then I started to realize, and I was like, he would do problems in class. Like, this is a problem. How would you well, How would you make a business to solve it? And I eventually just nailed things down. I feel like, okay, I got this. I know how to do this. And it just made sense. 
you know, some things come easily to people, and I feel like it comes easily to me, and I, I love it. Do you know what that's got to mean to him personally? You know, that you're trying to follow in his footsteps. That probably means more to him than you know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been by my side day in day out since my freshman year. He he got me into wrestling, which I'm wrestling in college, going to college for full tuition scholarship for wrestling. He got me into that, and, and I did nifty. He got me into it, and I feel like you know it, it means a lot to me and him. And I he deserves it. He's an awesome guy. You said um, during your presentation that some, sometimes when you lose, you win. You said something along those lines. What did you mean by that? I think uh, you were referencing after the national competition, but what uh, specifically did you have on your mind? On my mind is a better a person who said it early, later in the um, competition presentation over here was um, Kalia mm-hmm. from The Surge. Yep. She says, if you're going to fall, you're going to fall forward, not backwards. And I, I just picture that in my head is that if I'm going to fail, I'm going to learn from that mistake. And that, I also had SLU last year from um, John Alsup, who sponsors the SLU Business Entrepreneurship Plan. He said, you know, I, I failed many times in my life, and I don't regret a single one of them because I learned something from it, and I'm, well, I look where I'm at today, and I would never change a thing. And I, that meant a lot. That means no matter what happens, if you keep moving forward, eventually you'll get it right Eventually, it'll work out, and I think that's the beauty of life. Just moving forward after the fail. Very happy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, best of luck, too. And after the break, we'll hear from the man I've been teasing you about this entire story, Jake Lipinski, Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And can't wait to hear from him, Alex. And, you know, you hear this over and over again about failure and risk-taking. And we're not doing a good enough job in this country teaching these things. And by the way, when you get a chance, listen to two things. We've done quite a number of these stories about Nifty. And one in particular that tugs at our heart is Obino Coley's story, the Haitian immigrant who had two baby mamas, as he told us, but he didn't let it become three. And it made him very real with his students that he'd lived through tough circumstances. And here he was, a voice of these young men and women actually teaching them about entrepreneurship. And Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, uh, you'll hear from in this piece too. And their business was the double backer packer. They're heading to New York. We're heading with them. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We love stories about entrepreneurship. The other thing I wanted to have you see and look and watch for on our website is Denzel Washington's commencement speech. Because he said over and over again to that graduating class in Louisiana, he told them, fall forward, fall forward, and don't have a backup plan, fall forward. More on Nifty, more on these great stories. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's Regional Pitch Competition in St. Louis, Missouri. In this segment, he speaks with the person all of these students you've been hearing from have in common, their entrepreneurship teacher, Jake Lipinski, Global Teacher of the Year. And by the way, in the background, you'll hear from, periodically, screaming in the background, Jake's boy. How did you get into teaching in the first place? Um, I, my former coach of mine, um, after I graduated from college at Mizzou and I wrestled there, called me up and said, uh, you need to come coach with me. And so uh, I said, I don't know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, so I went and coached at Lafayette and got me a job as a hall monitor. Didn't, didn't still know at that moment I wanted to be a teacher, but I come from a teaching family. My father was a teacher for 30 years. And a coach, right? And a coach. Um, my sister's a teacher. My brother-in-law is a teacher and a wrestling coach. Um, I was the last one to get into it, even though I was older than my sister. And I realized uh, pretty quickly once I got to the high school and was working there and coaching with the kids, I really enjoyed the experience with the high school students and and I knew right away that it was a place I wanted to be. So I went into grad school to be a teacher, and here I am. How did you get to do an entrepreneurship? you got to know how rare this is in most schools. Um, I think marketing and, and just – I was going to be a marketing teacher, and entrepreneurship is um, part of some of the curriculum, and I kind of have always had that mindset. And actually, the guy I student taught under, who was my former coach, um, the guy got me into to education – Right when I finished my student teaching, me and him started a business. What and, was it? Uh, soda Jerks. We, St. Louis Mills opened up. We had a store there for five years. And I worked a store for about three years. And like most businesses, uh, there was problems, mainly being at, being at St. Louis Mills, <laughs> being number one problem. The Mills is a shopping mall that, like many malls across this country, is now largely abandoned. And um, a few years into it, I decided I, I had my teaching degree. And... Um, I was coaching still, and I, I knew I had to start making a little more of a living than I was making it. You know, I had dreams of being a millionaire, which wasn't going to happen. And <laughs> the right opportunity came along. There was an opening, and I decided to go for it and got the job. And here I am, ten years later, at Fort North teaching. You almost feel like your your failure has helped you. As oh, a teacher? I, fa- I tell the kids they laugh. You know, kids say they laugh. Like, you failed. You, you failed a business. What are you I, actually, teach us about? I actually had a kiosk once. Once I got back from, I'm one of those guys that. When I travel, I'd see things like, I want to take that to St. Louis. Yeah. So I opened up a kiosk selling Brazilian jewelry. I went to Brazil, <laughs> and it didn't work out that well. Another issue. So I, I tell the You're kids. Still standing there. Yeah, I still the kids. I Almost everybody that's you know been a business owner, they've had failures. I learned so much. Most stuff I teach my kids is all from the mistakes I made. You know, and my, my buddy put it simply. He's like, you know, he wants to start another business one day, and he's a teacher. He's getting ready to retire here soon. And he said, um, you know, people ask me, you want to start a business? Of course. That, that, edu- that money that we lost in that business, that was like paying for a degree at, at Mizzou or something. I mean, <laughs> you literally learned so much from that. It was real life experience. What was you the know? Soda Jerks? What did you guys sell? So Soda Jerks was, um, it's kind of like a, a wine shop or, uh, or a cigar bar for sodas. Okay. It was glass bottled sodas, all glass bottled from around the U.S., a lot of small brands that you can no longer find. We have uh, Fitz's here in St. Louis. Do yeah, so you have the Milwaukee one? I'm blanking yes, on the name. Spruckers. Spruckers, we yeah. Sold I've, Spruckers. Been, I've been to their brewery. Okay, so, yeah. exactly. Every city has their Spruckers yeah. and their Fitz's. So we brought all those to our store. We, we got them shipped. We um, 
We had distributors, and we'd pick that stuff up. We had about one time maybe 300, 350 different bottles of soda in our store. Wow. The majority of it was glass bottles. Then we started getting international stuff that people were kept coming and asking us for. We started getting international bottles. We had a soda fountain. Lots of inventory. Yeah, we had a, we had a fountain bar that was an old soda jerk. We went yeah. to Maryland and bought a real soda jerk bar. They, like they did back in the 20s and 30s. It's a great name for it. And, and Soda Jerks was a great name. The kids loved it because they sold shirts. A lot of those shirts sold because wow. it said jerk on there. But for the older people, a Soda Jerk was somebody that made a soda. Yeah. And so the idea was there. The location was horrible and a few other things. But um, it was a great learning experience, you know, and, and, and we could mix and match. It was kind of like craft beers nowadays where you go in and make a six-pack of whatever you wanted, 12-pack. That's how ours worked. And that's, that's, that was the idea. How uh, is there a moment from your teaching this class that really stands out to you? That you know, when you go to bed at night, says, "Man, this all has really been worthwhile." I it literally was happening when I was sitting back there, and, and, and when it first started tonight, you know, sit back there when those kids were ready to present. I said, "It's all worth it to see all these people there, and, and to see." I honestly wouldn't. I wouldn't have done this when I was in high school. You know. I was one of those guys that want to get in front of the class or anything, and, and it's amazing to me to see kids getting up there, and, and they have to put a lot of practice in, the nerves, they got to control all that, and, and you know, I, that's what makes it worth it. These guys actually take my advice, you know, I'm not, I don't claim to be the expert on everything, but I tell them this is a great experience and they're going to get a lot out of it, and, and these kids step up and, and believe in me. And they come up here, and, and the end result is getting up there. That's awesome. I mean, just to stand up there and do this, win or lose, is it's pretty impressive to me. I can see how much they respect you just in their interactions with you. Why, why is that the case? I, I, I don't know. I I guess coming from a – in the end, I think, you know, people know their calling. You, you figure it out. I think I do have a knack for this. Coming from a teaching family, my father, and just the way I saw him interact with his former students and stuff, you know – I don't know what it is. I enjoy. Yeah, I can tell just talking I, to you. I, I You're a pretty enj- genuine guy. I enjoy. So not faking it or putting on an yeah, act. Talking I, with me or talking to uh, I made a. You know, I made my mistakes in my life. I enjoyed high school. High school was one of the best times of my life. And I just want kids that had that same experience. You know, high school should be great. It tries me things you want. I, and I tell my kids, here's regrets I have. I don't want them to have as many regrets. Try everything. You know, and I think this is just an unbelievable opportunity. They didn't have things like this when I was in high school. You yeah. know, and they I didn't want either. And I just. I encourage as many of them as I can to, to, to step up and, and do it. And, and I think every kid I've – I've never had a kid say I regretted it. You know what I mean? And, and that's the key, you know. Now, one kid's ever come back and goes, I wish I didn't do all that. Yeah. They, they all actually go, I wish I would have done it earlier. Do you have a favorite lesson that you teach? Oh, uh, <laughs> definitely not the financials. Uh, <laughs> that goes for – that's probably half the class. Um, and yet you're still doing it. <laughs> I, you know what I do is I, I, I do a quick thing. I, I have some fun where I have the kids. Um, I take a more popular right now is the, what are the flying uh, to drones? Yeah. So right away about the second week of class, I have the kids spend about three days. I tell them a drone. It's out there. You can buy them. What can you do to make money with them? And there's some interesting things kids come up with. Deliver oh. medicine. Deliver, <laughs> deliver uh, hair. I, I, oh I mean, deliver hair? Uh, yes. And, you know, so I tell them, like, there's people buying drones right now to make money out of it. Yeah. It's interesting to see the array of ideas that kids come up with. And that's, that's gets them started to be creative, thinking, you know, how to solve problems, you know, and, and figure out things. So, What's with the handlebar mustache? Are you a, a, hipster, a hipster wrestler? Hipster I mean, doofus. Hipster uh, wrestler teacher? It's, it's quite a combo. 
It's uh, it's called Brandy. And um, father, I mean, you got a lot of labels. Yes, here. it's Brandy. Um, I've never had a mustache in my life. A year ago, I just let it grow all summer because when I'm a teacher, I'm off in summer. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna grow a mustache, and I just did it. I had it for a year. I let it grow out again, my whole beard during the rest of the season. Good job. I'll see you tomorrow. And um, I brought it back again. I just say, you know, if you're gonna go big, go. You know, if you're gonna have it, go big. It's funny though. I noticed this year the kids were coming to school. I walk around the school and they're like, "Who's this Miss Lipinski?" I hear him talking to other teachers or, or other kids. The kids go, "It's the guy with the mustache." And there's about ten other teachers that had mustaches forever. They they say this: the guy with the mustache. The mustache, not the guy with not the mustache. mustache. Yes, <laughs> the mustache. They know it's me. So I tell kids, it's it's branding. You know, you got to be. Yeah. If you're gonna do it, people gotta know exactly what you you know. So, anyways. Reporting from St. Louis, Missouri, I'm Alex Cortez. And thanks for that, Alex. And thanks, Jake, for doing what you do. And that's Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And we love doing these stories. The Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, their regional pitch competition in St. Louis, Missouri. We're going to track these stories. Some of these kids and some of these adults are going to New York City. We'll be there as they pitch for the Nifty National Championship. And that's sometime this fall, and we'll bring it to you. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, Jake Lipinski's story, his students' stories, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and on our show we love to tell stories of songs the story of songs we like to call it we've done Gimme Shelter Jesus Take the Wheel Georgia on My Mind There Goes My Life and today we're telling the story of Over the Rainbow the song is originally sung by Judy Garland in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz it's so familiar that a few of us well we couldn't imagine a world without it the music well, it was written by Harold Arlen, a Jewish writer, a man who wrote over 500 songs in his career, some of the great American songs and songbook creators from Tin Pan Alley and the great Broadway era. The lyrics of this ballad were written by E.Y. Yip Harburg, whose parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia. Here is the lyricist Harburg himself talking about his writing, and singing the famous song. 
Let's take a listen. I belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours. Sometimes they were called minstrels. Now we're called songwriters. Who were not ashamed of a thing called romance, motion, humor, and especially the English language. We lived in a world that knew the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. We worked for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope and laughter, so that in times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When purple clouds darken up the skyway, there's a lovely highway to be found. Leading from your window pane to a spot behind the sun, just a step beyond the rain, somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me Somewhere over the rainbow Bluebirds fly Birds fly over that rainbow why then, oh, why can't I? If any little bird can fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? And the song written during the Great Depression, well, its intent was to point to better times, a place without trouble or depression. It's a song of hope, in fact, it will be the hope of Judy Garland for years to come after her performance in The Wizard of Oz. The first recording of the song was on October 7, 1938, on the MGM sound stages. It became Garland's signature song. This song became the aching and longing of Judy's life. Harold Arlen said that Judy was the one who felt most deeply about the song. Garland once wrote in a letter to Arlen, quote, As for my feelings toward Over the Rainbow, it's become part of my life. It's so symbolic of all my dreams and wishes. 
that I'm sure that's why people sometimes get tears in their eyes when they hear it. Judy is not the only one who felt deeply about the song. Judy's daughter, Liza Minnelli, tells the story of her heartfelt fan and how her mother handled the situation. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know, and it always, like, well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy like Lake Tahoe, and we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there, and it was just, you know, with <laughs> the sequin straps in one of those days, and, um, she said, oh, Judy, you're terrific. You're Judy, you're the rainbow. you got to always remember the rainbow. Then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, Judy, never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises. And when Mama came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mama and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mama looked at her and said, hi. Right? Which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, this. And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and <laughs> threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. And that's, well, you know, at a certain point, you can just sort of get sick of the hectoring, but look at how it moved people. The song is only two minutes and 43 seconds, but in its own way, it's timeless, leaving its stamp on history. The song won an Oscar in 1939 for Best Original Song. The Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts crowned it number one on the list of songs of the century. In March 2017, Garland's original rendition of the song was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally and historically significant. And the American Film Institute ranked the song the greatest movie song of all time. Not bad. Well, we're going to close out with a song as it appears in the film. And we're going to pick things up in this story of a song here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland's signature song, a song in every American's heart, every kid, the kid inside, every adult. Let's take a listen to the great, the immortal, Judy Garland. Annie, Ann, really, you know what Miss Ghost said she was going to do to Toto? She says she now, was going to... Now, Dorothy, dear, stop imagining things. You always get yourself into a fret over nothing. Now, you just help us out today and find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon. Beyond the rain. Lullaby 
upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where you This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow. 